It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. On Wednesday, 30th of November, I spoke to Michael A. Guyard, live to an audience of some of his 726,000 Twitter followers. Michael is a portfolio manager at Toroso Asset Management and author of the critically acclaimed newsletter and research publication, The Lead Lag Report. We discuss unprecedented market behavior and when a return to a traditional risk-on, risk-off environment is likely. Michael points to a few signals indicating a possible return to normality before offering his thoughts on how investors can attempt to cope with black swan events. And remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. So, without further ado, uh, welcome, Michael. It's great to have you with us. How are things? Well, I appreciate you saying... uh successful because it kind of depends <laughs> on on the year uh, I think is is how one should define uh, one as being successful now but uh, things are I think improving uh, but not quite there just yet yeah yeah fair and we'll get into a bit of that I'm sure um, but if we can just start by a couple of interviews that you've run lately actually I, I watched your recent interview um, with Mark Cahodas where he said markets are broken people have lost their minds so to kick off and to help perhaps set the, the rest of the discussion in context. To what extent do you agree with that statement and what specifically is most broken about markets right now? Well, I mean, I think markets are a reflection of people. So if markets are broken, it's really people that are broken. Look, the, the, the reality is that we have a, a, a real issue with wanting to believe and wanting to think that the long term is tomorrow. When, from the standpoint of what Mark was saying, yeah, he was referring to this idea that markets are broken in that people don't really trust uh, the system, and you end up having a lot of scams, especially what we've seen in the cryptocurrency space, really making people suffer through severe pain right, and loss. And a lot of this dynamic is largely, I think, because increasingly people don't really understand what it takes to be successful from a longer-term perspective. You know, I think a lot of people have lost the the very notion of 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 what an investment is supposed to be, and listen, I I I see that and and feel it myself, right? I think increasingly in a social media driven world, people's attention spans are shorter. That breaks markets because it means that people are trading more off of noise than signal. And I think also that this kind of desire to get rich quick, which you know arguably is a constant throughout human history, right? It's never been more. Uh, prevalent as it is, I think, today. And that, in turn, breaks markets because, again, it, it leads to the rise of a lot of uh, scams and, and nefarious actors that are basically taking money under the guise of a narrative that you'll do better with, with their cryptocurrency project or their investment than, than others. Um, so it's a, it's a bigger issue. I, I don't know how you solve that um, other than maybe having brokerage firms charge higher commissions to 
make it so that there's a cost to getting involved in markets as opposed to frictionless trading, which arguably makes people overtrade to begin with. But um, yeah, I do think there's an element of truth to that, and and I'm not sure what reverses that. Yeah, got it. And he went on to say or express a concern, I suppose, that a lot of retail investors will be cleaned out as a result of that environment. Is that a concern that you that you share? Well, I mean, certainly a lot, a lot of leverage, right, is is going to get cleaned out from this, right? I mean, I, I always go back to every single major systemic event is ultimately caused by uh, leverage as the precursor. Now, in this case, you've got leverage from uh, retail and institutions, right? They got heavy into the cryptocurrency space. Obviously, a lot of these kind of what they call shit coins are much more retail, clearly. But, um, you know, when you don't have limits to leverage in an asset class that's 24-7 traded, it creates conditions that you can have a tail event under. So I think that that's sort of the way that that should be that should be framed. It is, I feel, listen, I, I have been ranting for well over a year against narratives in the cryptocurrency space, poking fun every time at the store of value narrative, which I said on and on again, you cannot have something be a store of value if it has tail risk, both left and right side, meaning positive or negative. And I got vilified for saying that. Right? And now we're seeing clearly that that is true. I don't take joy in being right about uh, how wrong the narratives were. It, this is a very serious thing. A lot of people are suffering. I mean, you can't, you can't just, I think, vilify those that wanted to believe because there's a human element of wanting to believe that this is their way out. I think it's a, it's a more, I'd argue, cultural and societal issue where increasingly people feel left out from the current system's wealth generation, which is concentrated among a smaller, smaller number of people, that it creates sort of this feeling of hopelessness uh, which results in faith. And again, as I've said, when investment becomes religion, it's time to lose faith. So to me, this is more a, a symptom of a of a bigger problem that we have in in society uh, broadly. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's, let's move on then to understand, I suppose, how that's being expressed in markets and in market performance. I read your thread posted on Sunday, I believe, where you highlighted something you've been tracking, I think, for a while now. And that, namely, that was the... Uh, stock versus treasuries performance in light of the top 20 drawdown we're seeing in the S&P 500. So in your opinion, why might this not just be a function of the Fed hiking rates? And the reason I ask that question is, I think it's a contention you've, you've had to face a number of times. First of all, the narrative that the Fed hiking rates is what broke treasuries is just not, it's just not true uh, historically. And when I say broke treasuries, I'm really referring to broke the uh, flight to safety dynamic, which you know, I run three funds. They all rely on Treasury, the risk-off asset, the benefits from stock market volatility for a reason. Because as I showed in that thread, in major drawdowns and major high volatility periods, Treasuries, more often than not, act as the counter-asset. So if you look at 10 out of the 20 biggest declines for the S&P going back to 1961, Treasuries made you money. Think of TLT as the proxy. While that drawdown is taking place, it's a counter-hedge. Nine out of those 10 Treasuries lost, but lost a lot less as the S&P went down, is the only year in history where treasuries have lost more than equities in a massive drawdown on equities. It's not an opinion. And it's something I've been, I've been hammering because, candidly, this has been, as I've said many times, my hell. There's a reason why I launched uh, three funds, a mutual fund in 2012, Roro, my ETF, and JoJo yeah, in uh, November 2020 and July 2021. I launched them under the idea that treasuries act as the safe haven, that these signals, which are outlined in these research papers, uh, tend to get ahead of high volatility periods for equities. And the best way to play high volatility in equities is treasuries, except this year. And 
my approach is purely rules based. So of course, on Twitter, people don't seem to understand that concept, which means that it has nothing to do with me. It's not my decision how it rotates or how they're structured. It's very purposeful that it's quant oriented, so that it lives beyond me as the PM who launched these, you know, these products. Now, let's tease this point out about this is not purely because of the Fed. First of all, the drawdown in long duration Treasury prices and rise in yield started way before the Fed started hiking rates. It started late July, early August of 2020. Now, that should make sense, right? Because you would expect that as you have reopening happening, bond yields will start to react on a, a reacceleration of growth or inflation, combination of the two. And by the way, that drawdown in long duration treasuries, just to put it in perspective, from August of 2020 to the low uh, last month in prices, that drawdown would rank it among the top five biggest declines for the S&P 500 in history, including the Great Depression. So you talk about something which is historic, even if it was equities, let alone bonds, right? So very unusual from that perspective. And I keep going back to this point of so many times, past matters more than prediction. You can say from here until tomorrow, and I'm going to keep pushing back on all these people that think I'm wrong on this, that you should have seen stocks and bonds selling off. I don't disagree with that. I've heard for years the death of 6040. But you can't say that that happens without addressing how it happens. The way that this decline manifested is unequivocally uh, an anomaly. So not only do you have, for the first time in history, treasuries as the risk-off safe haven losing more than equities in a big drawdown for equities, but then on top of that, you look at the uh, way that the S&P has declined most number of weeks as a percentage of the year going back to 1931. So you've had this really consistent grind lower in equities. You look at the same stat for treasuries, most number of weeks ever in history as a percentage of the year that treasuries have lost money. So now you've got three really extreme dynamics. You've got magnitude of treasuries losing more than equities, and then you've got sequence of stocks as a standalone and treasuries as a standalone. Right? And for me, this is kind of a, it's almost like a, a professional and personal battle because this is based on research. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation of why my own strategies have gone through such a nasty drawdown. It's funny because seemingly people forgot that in 2020, my mutual fund was up 72%, being rules-based, using treasuries as the risk-off safe haven, because it did what it was supposed to do in 2020. You had the COVID crash and treasury prices rallies and yields uh, collapsed in a high-volatility sequence. So I, I, I do really believe that most people are underappreciating how abnormal this year has been. And again, history would suggest that it's not purely because of the Fed. You look at of those drawdowns and equities where treasuries countered and made money while stocks were going down, in four of those periods, the Fed funds rate was rising. Okay, so even in periods where the Fed funds rate historically has risen, there are plenty of examples where you can clearly point to long-duration treasuries as the counter to stock market volatility. It's not just because of the Fed. I'm not disputing that the Fed obviously isn't a component here, but you have to look at history. And you know the reality is it's not just as simple as saying the short end rises, the long end rises as well. Yeah, completely see what you mean. And uh, in that post, I think uh, you highlighted that long duration treasuries have lost money 68.1% of this year. So we've talked about uh, the asset classes characterization as a safe haven. Um I assume you don't think that's a thing of the past and that this is an anomaly rather than you know, a, a trend that's likely to persist. But perhaps you can give us an idea of when you think that might reverse. Yeah, well, first of all, I would argue that we all have to hope that it, it doesn't persist. right? And I say that really, I'm not saying that because you know, I need it for my funds. I need, I need to at least have a chance right, to come back in the drawdown with the flight to safety trade kind of reasserting. Yeah. But um, 
think about the implication of the idea that treasuries keep a drawdown like what we've seen this year relative to equities in a big equity drawdown. You can't have, I can't, this, this, this was the, my whole end of the world is the bull case melt-up argument. How can you possibly have a system that is so levered where the collateral, which your leverage is based off of, government debt, government liabilities, how can it be that the collateral is more volatile than that which you're leveraging against the collateral? It, it doesn't even make sense, right? Just logically, mm. right? It's, it's not even a possibility, right, for a system to, to function like that. Then you might as well make your risky asset the safe collateral, if that's the scenario, on a relative basis. So that's why I said that's like an end of the world type of situation. If that continues, the system f- completely fails to to function if the baseline with which all other interest rates have a spread against treasuries keeps acting as volatile as we had seen up until that low, you know, last uh, last month, right? Low in price and top in yield. By the way, that same dynamic that that hurt me is the same dynamic that hurt risk parity. Okay, if Ray Dalio were to have started risk parity a couple of years ago and entered a year like this, he would not be a billionaire because in risk parity, it relies on treasuries also have to act as the counter asset. And again, for the first time in history, that didn't happen. So I think here's the thing about this stuff, just like the expression, the, the cure to high price for commodities is high price. Well, the cure to high yield is also high yield, okay, meaning at some point, and I think we are starting to see some of that. Long-duration treasuries will stop in their yield going higher, despite the Fed still being hawkish on the short end. So in other words, you can keep on having a deeper and deeper inversion, right? where long-duration treasury yields oddly drop, meaning long-duration treasury prices rise as the Fed is still hiking the short end, which would be what you would traditionally see in a more classic recession, in a real risk-on, risk-off dynamic, a flight to safety to government debt because the government can't default. Yeah, got it. Um, I guess I'm keen to sort of tease out then when or kind of what indicators or markers we can look out for that might suggest a change in sentiment. I think in one of your recent newsletters, you highlighted uh, utilities and treasuries. Um, They've had their moments independently this year already. But if we see increased correlation between those two asset classes, should that be considered an indication that market sentiment might change? Okay, so this is actually an important and, also again, one of, the, one of the anomalies. It's not that you don't have periods in time where utilities and treasuries don't diverge. But usually utilities, yes, they are a risk-off safe haven sector, which means in a big drawdown, they'll go down, but down historically a lot less than equities. The real story this year was utilities, was not energy, right? Because utilities were, with hindsight, the much better way of playing risk-off high volatility in equities than treasuries. Now, to your point, usually when utilities are strong, and it's not my opinion, this is based on quant-based work, you can read the research papers on SSRN that won these awards that document this stuff, usually when utilities are strong, treasuries are strong, meaning yields are dropping, which makes sense, right? Because utilities as a sector are highly levered, much of their earnings variability is driven by interest rate variability, so you tend to see the two strong, you know, with treasuries obviously a lot stronger. Now, you had a divergence to your point, the thing that... um I think something major happened November 16th, and I'm being very specific on that date because I put a tweet out. This was after FTX had filed the Friday before, as I recall. You had the market up, the stock market up, and treasuries were strong in price, dropping in yield on the long end. And then they held, meaning yields didn't really kind of move very much as the stock market itself kept on going lower intraday. So that was the first, one of the first times I can remember all year where it looked a little bit more like a fear trade, 
like a flight to safety trade. Meaning that day, suddenly the dynamic of treasuries against a volatile stock market started to reassert compared to history. And I've been saying in my own work at the Lead Lag Report and tweets that you know the, the dynamic looks a little bit different. The conditions are not as clear as when I said melt up October 2nd in equities. And that's because treasuries are now responding a little bit more, I'd argue, normal against equities, right? Whether it's FTX, you know, maybe it is, maybe there's some kind of spillover, maybe we just hit some kind of natural wall or ceiling rather on how high yield could get. Who, who the hell knows and cares about the reason for why? What matters is that it seems like the, there's a change in, in that correlation of treasuries losing money and equities losing money as of mid-November. I hope it persists, right? Again, I keep going back to I think all of us should hope that persists because, you know, you want to have somewhere to hide. So this is also an important point about this year. Look, energy obviously has been a tremendous winner. Okay, no disagreements. You could have not just hidden in, in energy. You could have made money energy. But, you know, cash is not a place to hide because cash loses money after inflation. Shorting is not really a place to hide because all it takes is one of those rip-your-face-off rallies to then suddenly undo months of gains, like we saw, you know, post on that day of the uh, CPI release. So you actually want to see risk off, get back to being risk off again. Because at least then you can do something about it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, um, I guess if we bring it up to sort of present day, I was reading uh, the newsletter that you released uh, today where you highlighted you felt at least maybe conditions were starting to stabilize slightly. Um, the dollar you uh, highlighted is steadying, the VIX is down. But is that simply a reflection of markets waiting for the jobs and inflation data we're going to see later this week? Or do you think that's a trend that's likely to continue beyond that point? So I think there's an element of that. I, I had been putting out these tweets, you know, I think using the either InSync or Backstreet Boys, whatever it is, Giphy of bye, bye, bye. I think it was InSync. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was not very big on that boy band, just to be clear to the audience when I was, when I was uh, much younger. But, the, uh, but I was you know, basically saying, you know, the dollar looked like it was going through distribution, right? And, and you know, in terms of just a technical analysis pattern and that you probably have a, a pretty big break. And part of the whole melt-up thesis October 2nd was the idea that the dollar would confirm it by breaking down suddenly to cut off the tail risk of a sovereign debt crisis, at least momentarily. Now, if you notice, the dollar's actually been stabilizing since that, that pretty aggressive sell-off. Now it's kind of going sideways again, um, looking like maybe it wants to re-strengthen. What's curious to me, and this is why I think the tone is changing, is that now the dollar looks like maybe it's stabilizing, maybe it wants to resume its advance after that big decline. At the same time, treasuries are acting stronger. So now you actually have two confirming parts of the marketplace that are basically saying risk-off defense. Whereas usually, the, when the dollar is strong, treasuries are strong because foreign money goes into the safety of U.S. government debt and plays that yield, right? Obviously, this, that wasn't the case this year. The dollar was the much better risk-off play among everything else, followed by utilities, followed by gold, and then treasuries were not even close, right, obviously. Now, that's, it looks like that's, the two are kind of syncing up. And I, I see that and I say to myself, okay, that's another change in intermarket dynamics, which for all we know, could maybe be a warning sign that that capitulation in the stock market, which everyone's been waiting on, which I said happened on the bond market, um, but maybe you know, still coming for the stock market, that that might be getting closer than, than people think. So the broader point here is that it's, from my vantage point, it looks like things are, are just resyncing. I don't know if that's a harbinger of something banned to come or not. I would simply argue that to see normalization in some of these intermarket relationships 
is the first step to a more normalized environment for investors. Yeah, I guess a big milestone or something top of mind for investors will be the Fed meeting uh, in December. Um, perhaps we can just start with your opinion on how likely a pivot then is, and then we can move on to what the impact of that decision might be. So I have to tell you, this whole pivot obsession to me is a little bit strange because, and I say that because it's not my opinion. This is just, if you look at the data, and this comes from actually, I think it was Prector's firm, that when you look at the history of markets and a Fed pivot, right, that when the Fed funds rate goes from going higher to then turning lower, that the bulk of bear markets happen during a Fed pivot, which makes some sense intuitively. Because why would the Fed be lowering rates again, which is what a pivot you know, for most people is? Because something broke, because something's bad, because they overreacted, right? And they lag against that. So it, it's not, it's, right? So they're responding to an event or a, an overreaction with a delay. So everyone always keeps on saying, oh, the market's going to be fine when the Fed pivots, we're getting closer. No, no, actually, the Fed pivot is the, is the bigger problem. Now, I, I get it. There's going to be people that say, well, you know, this year's abnormal. So how do you know that that's going to be the case this time around? I don't. You have to go with probabilities and historical cause and effect. I said in loud caps, the Fed is going to fuck up again, right? Just just before this this Twitter search. And that's not, you know, I said unpopular opinion. It's like, that's a pretty popular opinion. I mean, that's what they do. They're going to constantly be late to the stuff. So the reality is what will cause, you know, a Fed pivot, which would be you know too late for equities based on history, wouldn't be the Fed itself. It would be high-yield credit spreads. Okay, so in other words, if you have junk debts, relative to nominal treasuries blowouts of the same duration or similar duration, that would suggest that the bond market now is pricing in default risk. Now, the last several weeks, you haven't had any of that. You actually had tightening, which is basically saying to the Fed, keep going, keep tightening, right? So, which is, again, oddly enough, risk on. That, I think, is what would force the Fed. It's not, I know people always say the Fed is beholden to the stock market. The Fed doesn't give a shit about the stock market. They care about credit spreads because credit spreads impact the real economy. And the moment you are pricing in default risk at a higher yield than was the case before, that's when the Fed starts to take notice. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Well, then, if we move on to how investors might try and cope with the anomalous market behavior, the black swan type behavior we're seeing in markets this year, uh, it has been a tough time for rule-based strategies like we alluded to earlier, um, you referenced risk parity. That was, that, I think that's a pretty strong example of that. Um, when might we see the return of a more traditional risk-on, risk-off environment, do you think? And I don't, I don't think we need a specific date here, but maybe give us an indication uh, of when that market environment might return. Well, I mean, we, that's, not, that's the thing. We may, we may have already re-entered that kind of dynamic, uh, going back to that November 16th date. So I will put this, <laughs> I will put the specific date there. So look, I, I've said this before, and it's like, you always have to be mindful of how markets have a funny way of screwing everybody. And I use that line many times, right? Bear markets make fools of bulls and bears. I've referenced that point that when Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy September 15 of 2008, people seem to think that the stock market collapsed right away. It didn't. There was a delay. So Lehman filed September 15, 2008. The week afterwards when, is when stocks really started you know, getting hit. And then the week after that was one of the real waterfalls. And I reference that because there are lags. I mean, I, I, I named my research the lead lag report because they, that's, they, there are lags. There's lag responses. Markets are not efficient. For all I know, and that's why I'm saying it's curious that it happened after FTX, that there was a sense of fear on November 16. For all we know, there could be a lag 
from what we're seeing in the cryptocurrency space, the collapse, the liquidity, the deleveraging to stocks. Now, I'm not making the argument that it's going to be like 2008, but in a highly levered system, a butterfly flapping its wings can create a hurricane. This is a, this is classic chaos theory. So it could be that. That could, oddly enough, have been what what sparked it, right? And yeah, okay, maybe it's also a coincidence. I don't, I don't know, right? I mean, we'll only know with hindsight, but if there is some kind of a a tail event that might be looming with a delay on risk assets, we may end up looking back and saying Treasuries actually saw it first. Yeah, really interesting. I've not heard that before. Um, particularly that point around FTX being that that potential sort of pivotal event, potentially even that inflection point. Is that is that something you've heard kind of echoed by other sort of market commentators, or is that is that something you're kind of putting out yourself? No, it's more me, but it's just it's 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 just you, know, you hear all these stories about how how many creditors did did uh, FTX have, and then BlockFi and all these other you know uh, dominoes they're folding, uh, folding kind of one by one. It's like you know the tentacles reach pretty far. Right, and I keep going back to that point. A, a margin call in one asset class is never just isolated; it's just one asset class. Again, I'm not arguing that you're going to have some kind of massive system collapse like wait. I'm simply arguing that it's it's a non-zero probability that we could still see a delayed spillover from the cryptocurrency collapse to equities, and maybe that's why Treasuries are acting different than they have the bulk of the year. I don't think it's just because of the hope, which I do think is still is there. Obviously, that inflation may have turn the corner. The behavior just from a, a daily perspective looks a little bit like it's a, maybe a combination of the two, a little bit of fear and maybe a little bit of hope of, of an inflationary peak. Got it. Okay. Well, if we go back to kind of, again, how investors might try to cope with this sort of market behavior. Um, in that interview I referenced at the start with Mark Hodes, uh, he suggested a way to play the current environment was simply to have an idea and stick with it, indicating, or at least reading between the lines on my side, indicating this might be way to almost dilute the unprecedented volatility and anomalous market behavior we're seeing. Uh, he referenced his Carvana short as a good example of, of how that might manifest. To what extent do you agree with that approach? You know, the funny thing is that um, for most people, drawdowns really shouldn't matter at all. And all of the mm. stuff that we get hyped about really shouldn't matter for people if they don't need the money tomorrow. Or if they're creating a tactical strategy, like in my case, the whole approach is designed to cut off tail risk and equities in ATAX, Roro, and JoJo. <laughs> so people have kept on uh, sending me tweets saying, you know, because I've used that line many times before, to kill in the stock market, you have to not get killed. And then they'll put a picture up of a tweet up of Roro, which has a horrible drawdown this year, which is rules-based, based on index, which is back-tested, but has, you know, at least theoretically, very strong returns. And it's like, all right, yeah, I, I never said uh, to, to not get killed from treasuries, right? which again, has never happened in history. But, you know, I think that point about Sticking to something in a volatile environment is really uh, important. Having conviction with limits around how much you weight that conviction is really important. And in, you know, look, the reality is I'm sure you've seen those studies too. Those that tend to look at their accounts less over time tend to have much better performance, right? And which sounds like a strange concept, but what's the implication there, right? When you see a lot of data points, you see more volatility. When you see more volatility, then the self becomes emotional and wants to buy or sell and get in and out. It causes the overtrading, which causes the underperformance. Whereas if you're not looking at something actively enough, you're seeing less data points, you're seeing less volatility in between the data points, you're more like, likely to hold on to the investment and then reap the rewards from a longer-term perspective. So yeah, I do agree with that, that idea. I think you know, 
doing that is a lot easier said than done. I mean, one thing you can argue that people should do is not be on Twitter in periods of high volatility to not tempt them to do the wrong thing in something they've thoroughly researched. Yeah, absolutely. We had um, Brian Ferroldi on uh, Space a couple of weeks ago echoing that kind of long-term investor mindset. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting. I wonder whether you feel kind of speaking, I mean, we are very active on Twitter and feel hopefully we're doing a good job of putting kind of investor education out there and helping people through particularly volatile markets. But then I guess in a way we're subsequently contributing to market noise. I wonder how you kind of weigh those two things in your mind and how you attempt to achieve cut through. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's the cut through is in being rules-based. That's the whole reason I created my strategies, my funds, the way that I, I create them, right? Is to not have that emotional aspect. Yeah, it's funny because people seem, seemingly think on Twitter that I'm uh, emotional in my tweets. First of all, I'm gaming the algorithm to some extent because that's what gets engagement. But everything I do is quant-based and rules-based for a reason, right? Because I don't want myself to be having to think in those terms and then having to make the wrong uh, decisions based on a gut feeling which can be right, but may not be based on a real process, right, as opposed to the year now, versus something that's systematic and rules-based that obviously isn't working this year, but for all I know, and or I hope, starts to work as the risk-off you know, uh, behavior kind of reasserts. Look, at the end of the day, everyone has to, has to choose the approach that it best suits them. For me, I believe that being systematic, rules-based, is, is probably much better as long as you can point to cause and effect than purely discretionary trading. That's not to say there aren't great discretionary traders, but at least when it's rules-based and systematic, it's repeatable. Right? I think the problem on FinTwit is you end up having people that are, are touting some massive trade or investment that they made hundreds of percentage or thousands of percentage points off, and there's not even a recognition that that maybe is just luck. And the reality is that does have to be considered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I completely see what you mean. Completely agree. I'll use this juncture just to remind people if they would like to ask questions, uh, I can uh, bring them in uh, as soon as possible when it makes sense to do so. Uh, but I'll just go on to our opto question rounds. What is the most frequent mistake investors make, do you think, Michael? Doing research on Twitter. <laughs> I think the best way to, <laughs> to frame it. Um, I think the biggest um, I think the biggest problem people have is I've used that line many times, and I'm not trying to be cliche when I say it. Amateurs look to the right of the equal sign, pros look to the left. The problem everyone has, I see this so often, and I'm I'm living it. And I'm somebody who, you know, look, again, I, I no one has been more open open than me about the hell of this year, right? I could see it coming, I couldn't do anything about it because it's rules based. When you have a prospectus, you gotta follow it. You have a rules based approach, you gotta follow it. You can't override it, folks. And by the way, you know. I'm a portfolio manager of three funds. It costs over $200,000 to launch a fund, to bring a fund to market. So for anybody that's out there and trying to poke fun at the horrible drawdown that my funds have gone through, which I hope is now over, and that I hope you know, the dynamic comes back, that allows me to crawl back, which is not impossible based on the research and based on how I did in 2020 with my mutual fund, you know, it's a very serious endeavor. But the biggest problem people have is they get sucked into the small sample. They get sucked into the anomaly. They get sucked into recency bias. They think that whatever happened in the last several weeks or months is exactly how the future is going to play out. Well, they think that the best way to make money is to do ultra, ultra short-term day trading when all the evidence shows that the biggest returns come from close to close, not open to close. So it, it's that 
it's that short-termism and it's that getting sucked into the outcome as opposed to the process is unequivocally the biggest problem everybody has. And unfortunately, the truth is it's only getting worse. Yeah, completely agree. And no doubt that will resonate with a few people listening in as well. Um, we've got a question. Uh, Bondoc has requested to speak. So I've just allowed that. If you want to ask a question, please go ahead. Uh, you know, it's more of a comment. And you know, what I find interesting is that people are very, very, very uh, excited to buy dips, right? And, and we see that all over the place, right? And even in cryptos where people don't, like, you know, we don't know what the assets even mean. People are very, very, very uh, excited to buy dips. What I find fascinating in this market is that, you know, like Michael said, that bonds basically already capitulated in such to a degree that some of the yields you could see back from the 2000s and 1990s. I mean, that is a generational buying opportunity. And yet you have people that say, oh, bonds are horrible investment. And I wonder if it's a hatred of like sovereign entities and government the reason being that people don't want to own bonds because they don't understand that you can hold them in the short term. You don't have to hold the bonds long term. You can you can flip them when the yields collapse. You know they can they're used for protection. So I find very interesting that the buy the dip mentality doesn't really exist in bonds as much as it does in stocks in crypto. So you're 100 percent correct on that, and part of that's just because it's not exciting, right? You want to buy the dip in something that's volatile. Right, because the, the hope is that you can make more on the upside, right? It's that get rich quick. Going back to that earlier discussion, get rich quick, quick versus investing. Hey, listen, there are some tremendous opportunities in the bond market. Now, the thing is, people, and again, I think this is also kind of another problem, which goes to right of the equal sign versus left. People don't really understand bonds, which is funny to me because interest rates are everything, including <laughs> including in the stock market because of buybacks. Interest rates are everything. So, you know, this, let's talk about, let's even couch that in the, in the discussion on recency bias. Okay, so inflation, inflation, inflation. Inflation's lagging. The Fed is lagging. And yet everyone's still of this inflation narrative to the point where they refuse to buy bonds because the yields will keep going higher because of delayed, lagged inflationary data. Which, for all we know, we may have already not only reached the peak of inflation, but maybe a year from now, could be talking about disinflation or even outright deflation. And you know what? People can, Argue that that's not going to be the case from here until tomorrow, okay? But here's the reality. You got all this debt in the system. Debt becomes deflationary at a certain point, okay? And how can you even have a, a, a functioning uh, system if, against all this leverage, rates keep on rising, especially at the pace that they've been rising? So it kind of resolves itself at some point. So I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd call bonds a generational buy because I still think you're going to have credit spreads blow out. You're going to have a generational buy where whenever high yield really blows out against these already elevated interest rates, right? When you get that default risk premium really kicking in, which is your classic risk off recessionary type of tell. But, um, you know, for those that are, you know, legitimately not wanting to stress or worry and don't want to get sucked into the, the gamification and Vegas style gambling of cryptocurrencies and stocks, yeah, bonds kind of are not too bad at this point. Yeah, really interesting. We actually spoke to the head of product at iShares the other day on um, the Opto Sessions podcast, and she highlighted their fixed income ETF range, and they've got some really interesting, really interesting sort of hedged fixed income ETF products uh, that are pretty innovative and, and could be worth looking at. But anyway, that that podcast episode is out there for people that want to want to hear it. Um, my second question is part of this more generic round. Oh, sorry, Bondoc. Got a question? 
Yeah, you know, it's just to follow up on that too, is that I, you know, one thing I've been noticing over the past few days to weeks is that, and uh, some other people have commented on this, they're far more intelligent than me, uh, being like Jeff Snyder and Stephen Van Meter, is that you see kind of the bonds sell off also. If they've rallied overnight, they tend to sell off in the morning when the U.S. markets start, which is interesting because you. what I'm seeing then is that foreigners are actually buying these bonds, but U.S. market participants seem to be selling these bonds. And there's this interesting kind of like tug of war that goes back and forth. And I don't know if that's just coincidental or if it's one of those things where because we took a lot of the U.S. dollars and brought them into our economy, a lot of U.S. participants don't see the need to purchase bonds and they think the economy is strong. Whereas people outside the United States, where there is a dollar shortage, you see that they're hedging there by buying these bonds. And so you have this dichotomy in existence. And I find that very interesting. And I wonder if that is something that you guys see as well. No, no. And actually, this goes back to what I said before about, you know, this time around, it looks the dollar after that drop off now stabilizing, maybe wanting to resume higher. That kind of restrengthening seems to be happening at the bond market as treasuries in particular restrengthening. Which again is risk off, which suggests that to your point, foreign money is coming in and now going into treasuries. So dollar goes up because of the pressure, and then yields drop because they're going to treasuries, at least the margin. And that would be again a risk off signal because, like, well, why would that be happening? Right? Maybe that is then the sovereign debt crisis that you know has been arguably kind of a risk all along. It's just that becomes sort of the the real moment where it becomes clear that that's coming. So I, I think you're hitting on something which is important, which is why I go back to. Things look different now. The dynamic does look different. It's not my imagination. The intermarket relationships are reasserting in a more, I think, normalized way. And there is now maybe some cause and effect there to justify it. Got it. Thanks, Pondo. Next question, then. I think this speaks to the point we were speaking earlier about kind of tuning out noise um, and for people to get a clearer sense of what is actually going on in markets. Where do you go for investment or economic ins? Publishers you read, who can we actually rely on to give proper value? So this is going to be a very like corny answer, but I mean, you go to Mr. Market, but not even, not even Mr. Market, right? I mean, I, yeah. look, I, I always go back to um, the argument that price is truth is nonsense because price changes every day. Truth doesn't change every day, right? For me, it's always, it always goes back to the things which I can quantitatively prove have some predictive power that can tell me something about the conditions, right? Not about what's going to happen, but about the conditions favoring something happening. So from that perspective, it goes back to the research papers I'm known for. Utilities as a leading indicator of that price relative to equities tells you something about risk on, risk off dynamics changing. Lumber to gold because of the link to housing tells you something about risk on, risk off dynamics changing. By the way, lumber has collapsed this year, right? Which is risk off, which is so funny because that's what my Roro ETF uses as a signal to go offense risk on equities, defense risk off treasuries. My funds, Roro in particular, despite the strawdown, has been in defense mode the bulk of the year. The signal has been right. The problem, again, was treasuries. I keep going back to it for the first time in history. Okay, now, uh, same thing with moving averages, same thing with the VIX. So, from my vantage point, the only things that matter are the things that I can prove, again, warn you about you know, regime shifts changing in the short term. So, for me, it's very simple. I'm always looking at lumber relative to gold. I'm always looking at utilities. I'm always looking at where the moving averages and looking at VIX levels. Right, because I can point to that from a backtest perspective as having predictive power. The harsh reality is that 99% of the stuff that people focus on as signals, as tells on ways for them to figure out what's going to happen next, if you actually backtest it, doesn't work. I mean, this is just the reality. So I, I said Mr. Market. It's not really Mr. Market. It's about sort of the, it's almost like the subconscious of Mr. Market. 
yeah, right? Which is, which is which is these relative movements beneath the surface that just looking for I think are what you have to pay attention to the most because the reality is. The final There's a lot more noise than signal out there. Potentially on this one, unless anyone else has any uh, comments or questions to make. Um, we always ask everyone that appears on these spaces and on our Opto session podcast as well, uh, what is an investor's best source of alpha? And just to give you a bit more, a bit more to flesh that question out, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? And if I'm going to put it in one word, it's, it's, it's going to be grit, right? Because it's like, you're going to have every great investor. I don't give a shit who says otherwise. It's just not true. Every single great investor has periods where they have severe dislocations, severe drawdowns. By the way, Warren Buffett lost in Berkshire Hathaway 50% twice. Nobody ever says he's a horrible investor because he lost 50%. Right? But he's Warren Buffett. He knows his stuff. And, he, and, and obviously he has enough money to have the grit. Okay, I'm sure he can, he can ride it out. But my point is that, you know, I think the 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 thing that really does separate the the good from the great are those that have drawdowns are not the ones that don't avoid the drawdowns. The ones that have drawdowns, they keep going, right? And and maybe this is me kind of also just kind of talking to myself and saying that because I hope that that's the case in my world. But I do think that history has proven that, right? It's it, there's no such thing as a great investor that doesn't have a massive decline at some point. The only one that's ever done that is Madoff. Yeah, completely see what you mean. No, I, I think people can get overexcited about these uh, significant drawdowns. Um, and particularly, that's something that we at least try and point out on Opto as well, um, you know, taking that kind of long-term view, uh, particularly with a rule-based strategy, hence why we were so keen to speak to Michael today. Uh, but I think that is a nice insight uh, to end on. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much, Brian, for joining us on the space. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no, you guys do great work. I appreciate the invite. And thank you, everybody, for... Uh... Not getting too sick of my voice, given how often I'm speaking <laughs> daily. <laughs> yeah, cheers, Michael. And cheers, everyone else, for, for joining. Hopefully, we can run one of these again with Michael soon. Uh, and just look out uh, on, on our Twitter feed for upcoming events. Speak soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.